Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Once again, welcome Emmanuel Faith. We're so grateful you're here today. If you're joining us in the chapel or online, really thankful for your presence as well. My name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, I'm so excited to open the scriptures with you today. You know, I I told you a few weeks ago that um, our beloved dog, Louie, passed away and um, that we got a new puppy in our house. And... um, He's about 20 weeks old. His name, I didn't get naming rights this time. I named the last two dogs and I was 0 for 2. And so uh, my family said, we don't want your input. Uh, His name is Finley and he's all puppy. He is pushing the limits constantly. The limits of food. In fact, I think that this picture might give you a good sort of uh, snapshot of our household currently. Pushing the limits of food, of love, of, I mean, you name it, he wants more of it. Don't worry, we told him he couldn't do this. Right, right before this, just so we're clear. I, I know that there will come a day when uh, Finley will understand that he's not getting food from the table. Um, at least he's not getting food from me <laughs> at the table. Uh, there will come a day where when we're eating dinner, he just sits off to the side knowing quite well that he's not gonna get any of it. While there's a feast that'll be sitting up on the table, he will understand that it's not his. I found myself longing for that day <laughs> this week. And then the Lord brought to mind the passage of scripture that we're gonna be studying together today. And I started to wonder if I've domesticated what's intended to be a a more wild faith. I started to ask myself this question, have I become satisfied with far too little? I started to ask myself this question, God, do do you want me to be a little bit more like Finley? Like going after it, like like wanting more. (laughs) We're in this almost year-long study of the letter of 1 Corinthians. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at chapters 12 through 14, which have as their big idea, the work of the Holy Spirit in the community of faith. Now, the role of the Spirit is not insignificant in the scriptures, There are well over a hundred references to the spirit in the scriptures. Jesus says more about the Holy Spirit than he does about church, marriage, finances, and the future. In fact, did you know when the scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit, there's a, a few evocative images that it uses. Here's one of them. Um, This is John talking about the coming of the spirit in Matthew chapter three, verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and what? And fire and fire. So the Holy Spirit is like, like a fire. Uh, Jesus would say in John chapter three, verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everybody who is born of the 
spirit. So, so the spirit's like fire and the spirit is like wind. You, you don't get to initiate it. You don't get to control it. You just respond to it. And Jesus would say this in John chapter seven, verses 38 and 39, whoever believes in me as a scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the, the spirit. So we have the spirit described as, as fire, the spirit described as wind, and then the spirit described as a rushing river of water. Fire, wind, and water. None of those are elements that we control, are they? No, no. So once again, I'm bringing back myself back and us back to this question. Have we domesticated what's intended to be a more wild faith? Have we controlled something? Have we controlled someone who's intending to move us rather than be controlled by us? Those are the questions that I've been prompted by as I've come to this text today. Now, I understand when we talk about the spirit as, as fire and as wind and as water, and I ask questions like, have we domesticated something that's intended to be far more wild? I get it. Some of us get really, really nervous. And I get that. I get that. I think if we look through church history, we can see this pendulum that swings between two sort of polarities. On one hand, we've all seen or read about churches who sensationalize the spirit and things happen in their gathering that we don't read about anywhere in scripture. Some people have called that charismania. I don't think it's a bad term. But then on the other side of the pendulum, we have sensationalism on one side and then we can swing it to the other side and we have silencing of the spirit. We're in the same way. What happens in the gathering doesn't reflect what happens in the scriptures. And then somewhere in between, there's what I would describe as a healthy saint. Someone who's going, the spirit of God, like like wind and and fire and and a river and inside of me. And and God, what, what do we do with that? I love the way that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it in his wonderful book, Joy Unspeakable. He said, perhaps the greatest danger of all for Christian people is the danger of understanding the scriptures in light of their own experiences. We should not interpret scripture in light of our experiences. We should examine our experiences in the light of the teachings of scripture. That's a great point, right? Because we don't go and read the resurrection story account of Jesus rising from the grave and go, we haven't seen a resurrection. It couldn't possibly be true, right? Right, we, we, don't, we don't do that with the resurrection. And I would suggest that maybe, just maybe, we shouldn't do that with the spirit either. Let me be really honest with you. Over the last few weeks and months of studying 1 Corinthians, God's been messing with me. (laughs) Uh, He's just been stirring in me. And uh, I've been going back to the scriptures and trying to ask what, Paul, what are you saying? What were you saying then? And what are you saying now? I I hope it's okay to have a pastor who's still growing. Is that okay? Yeah. 
And my prayer is that, right, well, praise God. My prayer is that we would all come to the scriptures afresh this morning and just try to ask the question, God, what are you saying here? And what might it mean for us? And maybe, just maybe, there's more. Would you open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, as you turn there, let me remind you of the context. Pastor Dennis did a great job last week of reminding us of the more excellent way, the way of, of love. And that's exactly where the apostle Paul will pick up at the beginning of chapter 14. Listen to what he said. He said, pursue love. Like, like make that your active intention every single day to will the good of others. It is the way that we live together in community and earnestly desire the what? Spiritual, Spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So you have this combination that Paul's bringing together that we often separate He's saying, I want you to be people of love and I want your ethic of love to cause you to steward the gifts of the spirit in a certain way. I want your love to help determine how you interact with one another and how you live in the body together. See, because without love, the spirit might be wielded in an unfruitful manner and without the spirit, love may remain impotent. But you bring those two things together and you have the expulsive power of good in the Christian community and through the Christian community. So Paul gives two commands. One is love and the second is desire. Desire, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts Now, it's really, really interesting because Paul has already told us in this letter on two different occasions that you and all y'all are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Not only that, but he told us that upon salvation in Christ, we received the Spirit and we were, quote unquote, gifted by the Spirit. Look back to chapter 12, verse 11. It said, the spirit apportions to each as he wills. So the spirit gives you what he wants to give you. Okay, so let's put this together. Let's put this together. The spirit lives in us. God has given us the quote unquote gift that he wants to give us. He's apportioned to each as he wills. And now we're called to desire. Does that create cognitive dissonance in anybody else? Like, God, which is it? Do you give or do we desire? Is this us coming to you and saying, God, I want more is, or is it us sitting back and saying, God, we'll just take whatever you receive, whatever you give, which is it? And can it genuinely be both? And would Paul call us to desire something? that God had no intention of giving. See, at the risk of belaboring this point, uh, and I understand that I am at risk of that, but I'm gonna go there anyway. I'm convinced that when we think of spiritual gifts, we have something entirely different than what Paul's thinking about. We think about spiritual gift assessments most of the time, right? A list of 16 to 22 gifts that we either have or we don't have, right? Right? 
and they're locked in, right? This is the gift you got upon salvation. And if that were the case, why would Paul command us to desire the gifts of the Spirit? If it's just locked in and it's static and not dynamic, why in the world would Paul call us to desire the gift of prophecy? Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I think the term spiritual gifts is um, a less than helpful translation in our New Testaments. In the Greek, it's one word, pneumatikos. Will you say that with me? Pneumatikos. And it's an adjective without a noun. So it could literally be translated spirituals earnestly desire spirituals, which is probably why they didn't translate it that way. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I think what would make sense is earnestly desire the power of the spirit, earnestly desire a move of the spirit, earnestly desire the stuff the spirit wants to do in your life. My encouragement is to get your head out of a 16 to 22 list of gifts category And to broaden it up to say, assume that Paul is saying, earnestly desire the work of the Spirit in your life. It's dynamic. It is not static. And so I think we could summarize it like this, that those indwelt with the Spirit's presence are called to long for more of the Spirit's power. Those indwelt with the Spirit's presence are called to long or desire or earnestly desire more of the Spirit's power. Now, this word desire in the Greek is a word zelao, and it quite literally means to be jealous or zealous, or or it's like the word picture of to boil over. It's the same root word that Paul used when he wrote to the church one chapter before, and he said, love does not envy. Love does not get jealous. The negative way to view this word of desire is to get jealous or envious. So the irony is that we often get jealous for the wrong things, right? Like he's saying, I want you to be zealous and get jealous and boil over longing for more of the spirit's power and work in and through your life. I'm reminded of this urban legend about uh, golfer Arnold Palmer, who was over in Saudi Arabia and he played in a number of golf tournaments there. And after playing, he went and he met with the king of Saudi Arabia and the king insisted on giving him a gift. And Arnold said back to him, no, it's just a gift to be here. Thanks for having me. And the king of um, Saudi Arabia said, "I, I just insist, what can I give you as a gift? And Arnold Palmer said, well, how about a golf club? And he was thinking like a nine iron engraved, right? Maybe, maybe gold, right? <laughs> and the king of Saudi Arabia came back to him and said, a golf club, you've got it. And he gave him an entire golf resort, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's this picture of, hey, when you're in the presence of the king, don't ask for small things. It reminds me of what Jesus would say to his disciples. He would say, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who, what? Who ask him, who ask him. Not just to give him once, 
We know we have the spirit upon salvation. What are we asking for then? We're asking for more. God, stir something deeper in us. Move through us more powerfully. God, send your spirit in a way that moves us power, forward powerfully to carry your message and to proclaim your goodness and to drink in your love in new and in fresh ways. I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis said, famously said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong too weak. Maybe that's true of our desire for the spirit also. Maybe that's true of our desire for spiritual gifts, quote unquote, if you must, or the work or the power of the spirit in and through us. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's more. Maybe there's more. Maybe there's like a feast that's sitting there but we've been so domesticated and put off to the side that we would never think that that feast is for us. So what does Paul command the church to desire? The work of the spirit, specifically that of what? That of prophecy. I'm just gonna assume in the chapel, you nailed it, okay? Yeah, desire prophecy. And listen to the way he continues verse two. He said, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, His point, and we're going to see this throughout this passage, is that prophecy is one of the main ways that Jesus builds up his church. He drives this point home in verse 5, and he says, Now I want you, how many? All to speak in tongues. More on that next week. But even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless somebody interprets so that the church may be what? Built up. Now, this entire chapter, chapter 14, is essentially a compare and contrast about the manifestations of prophecy and tongues. I um, originally was planning on teaching on both prophecy and tongues today, and I got into it, and my message was 55 minutes long, and I had just covered prophecy. Um, And so I thought... I think I need to split these up. And so this week is going to be tracing this theme of prophecy all throughout chapter 14. And then next week we'll be tracing the theme of tongues all throughout chapter 14. I promise you, I will not skip one verse. I promise you that. But this week we're going to focus on prophecy. And Paul seems to focus on prophecy as one of the main manifestations in the gathered church because it has the ability to build everybody up. See, this passage shows us that we can have freedom in intimacy with Jesus, but that we need to have discernment and community. And so an important question that I think we have to answer is, what is prophecy? What is prophecy? I mean, if an entire chapter is built, at least half of it is about that, what is prophecy? We've talked about this before, but let me remind you that prophecy is both foretelling and it's forthtelling. It's 
What happens in Acts chapter 11 when a man named Agabus tells of a coming famine, but it's also the writers of scripture carrying the word of God along, writing it down for people, but it's also people in the church and court standing up and saying, I think I have a word from the Lord. It's all of those things. I love the way that Michael Green put it, a great scholar. He said, prophecy is a word from the Lord inspired by the spirit and given to build up the body. I'm gonna say it like this, and I'd invite you to write this down, that prophecy is a word from the spirit to you that he intends to deliver through you. It's a word to you that he intends to deliver through you. It's something from God for others. And it could potentially be for the whole church. It could potentially be for your life group. It could be for one person, but it's from God to you. He intends to move it through you. And in the rest of this passage, this this chapter, Paul describes prophecy for us. He gives us a good picture of what it looked like in the first century Corinthian church. Look back at verse three, because I think he gives us a good definition of prophecy here. He says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their what? For their upbuilding and for their encouragement and for their consolation. For their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. And this normalizes prophecy a bit, doesn't it? See, because if I were to go around and I would say, okay, um, and don't do it, but raise your hand if you've prophesied. My guess is that there wouldn't be too many hands up. There might be a few. But let's try it this way. Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever built somebody up. Right, okay. Okay. Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever given somebody a word of encouragement. Raise your hand if you've ever brought hope to somebody through your words. Raise your hand if you think maybe God prompted you to do one of those three things. Okay. So we just put ourselves in the category of what Paul called prophecy. It wasn't as strange as sometimes we make it out to be in our minds. He's teaching us that those words can be prophetic because prophecy is a word that encourages. I'd invite you to write that down. And so Paul's calling us to desire that. And isn't it a beautiful thing that when you're discouraged, when you're at the end of your rope, when you're down in the dumps, that God wants to encourage you. And sometimes certainly he'll do that directly through the scriptures. But oftentimes what he wants to do is surround you with a community of saints that he's speaking through to deliver a message to you through them. He wants to build you up, not tear you down. He wants to encourage you, not remind you of your failings. He wants to give you hope, not bring you to despair. And one of the ways he does that is by planting you in his church. Yeah, the spirit wants to bring communal edification through prophecy. Uh, Let me share um, just two ways that this has happened in my life over just the last um, two months. I was teaching up in, um, in Oregon at a conference there and it was around midweek during this conference and this gentleman came running up to me after one of the messages. He was the husband of one of the worship leaders and he said to me, Ryan, um, can I talk to you for just a few minutes? And honestly, you guys, my initial thought was no. I'm so tired. 
Like, just let me go back to my room. I, I just need to catch my breath for a moment. And, but I didn't say that. I said, sure. Um, and he said, um, uh, this morning I, I got up early and I was praying for you. And I was just overwhelmed with love for you. And I'm like, this isn't getting better. It's sort of a little, little, bit, little bit strange. And he goes, what I realized though, was that um, it was the father's love for you. And he, he said, I, I think God wants me to share with you that he sees that it's been a challenging season and he sees that you are putting one foot in front of the other and continuing to move forward. And he just wants you to know that he loves you and he's with you. And he goes, I don't know if it's from the Lord, but it seemed like what he wanted me to give you today. And if it resonates, then maybe it's from him. See ya. <laughs> and I, 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 you guys, seriously, I was on the corner of the street in Cannon Beach and I just started to tear up. Because man, like he didn't know that I needed that. Um, this last week, I was getting ready for this sermon. And every time this word prophecy came up, um, there was a name that popped into my mind. And um, he's a young man that goes to our church. And so I just decided I'm gonna reach out to him because I felt like I had a word for him. And uh, so here's the message I sent him. I said, hey man, it's Ryan. The Lord's been bringing you to mind a lot over the last few days. And I just want you to know that I'm praying for you. And as I'm praying for you, it seems to me that Jesus is saying it's time to step in. I'm not sure if there's something you're holding before him, but I get the sense that his answer for you is yes. I'm not sure if that means anything to you. If it doesn't, discard it. If it does, I'd encourage you to lean in with boldness. His text back to me began with, you have no idea. And this was dancing in my head for probably two or three weeks. And because of this text, I'm like, I need to lean in. I need to, and maybe God, maybe it's from you and maybe it's not, but there's only one way to find out to lean in, see a prophetic word of encouragement, of building up, of consolation. It could be a picture or an image. It could be a word. It could be a sermon. It could be a song. It could be a prayer. It could be a passage of scripture. It's any way that God speaks to you that he intends to also then speak through you. That's what Paul is talking about. Now, we all though know that prophecy isn't only positive, right? If you've read through the Bible, you know that the prophets often had some, what may not have been initially encouraging words to share, right? And they, they were a bit of a strange group, the prophets in the Old Testament. They oftentimes would preach about coming condemnation, about judgment, and about the need to repent and return to God. So jump down to verse 24 with me, which is where Paul picks up this conversation about prophecy. Like I said, we'll come back to the other stuff next week. You don't wanna miss next week, but for now, verse 24, because it's where he continues this discussion of what prophecy is. And he said this, he said, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are what? disclosed. Yeah. 
So notice that there's this legitimate potential that all in the community of faith could prophesy. And what happens when they do? People who are in the gathering, who are unbelievers or outsiders, they get this sense that God is talking to them. Like their mail is being read. Like somebody ratted them out and was like, hey, so-and-so's coming. Here's what's going on in their life. You need to talk about that so that they know that God is, has a word for them, right? That's how they feel when they come in, that they're convicted, called to account, and the secrets of their heart are disclosed. It's this picture of prophecy in that prophecy is a message that convicts. It's a message that convicts. Which is exactly what Jesus told us the Spirit would do. John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, listen to what Jesus said. He said, and when he, the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So one of the main things the Spirit wants to do, even as we're gathered together in this time, is to convict unbelievers of sin so that they will repent in light of the glorious grace of Jesus and turn to him to be saved. That's one of the things Spirit is doing as we gather. And so Paul's calling on the church to realize that through the spirit-given knowledge that they share with one another, God uses that to quicken people to spiritual life. And the spirit, it says, lays people bare. Like gives people the sense that there is a day coming where I will stand before the throne of God and you will stand before the throne of God to give an account for our lives. And there are only two places we will stand. We will either stand with our sin or we will stand with our savior. And the spirit of God wants to quicken people to life, even today to say, Jesus, I understand I need a savior. And even right now, maybe he's going, this is where you've gotten off track. These are the lies that you've believed. These are the ways that you've gone contrary to the way of love and the way of hope and the way of life in Jesus. And you are being called to repent and to turn to Jesus. That's what the spirit does. But not just for unbelievers, also for believers, for us as believers, it could be like we're singing a song about the glory of Jesus and he just convicts us and says, you're not living it out. Or maybe it's a prayer that we pray and we're just, the spirit of God just comes in. Or maybe it's a passage of scripture that just jumps off the page to you and the spirit uses that to lead you to repentance, not condemnation, but conviction to lead you to life. That's what he wants to do in our midst. Because even as the prophetic word discloses the darkness and the shadows in our hearts, God always, always, always does that to lead us to hope and to lead us to Jesus and to lead us to salvation. That's why he does it. Look at the way that he put it, Paul put it. The secrets of our heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, this is the unbeliever, falling on his face 
he will worship God and declare, God is really among us. What a picture of what it looks like to gather as the church. And I love that the early church had this conviction and this open invitation that there are going to be people in our midst who aren't yet followers of Jesus. If that's you, you are welcome here. We're so grateful that you're here. And we hope that you hear the voice of God speaking to you this morning. But I love the fact that for the early church, um, evangelism wasn't so much evidence that demanded a verdict. I mean, it was that. We're gonna get there in chapter 15, but it wasn't only that. It was a spirit that demanded a response. It was God is with us. And there's no way to deny it. God is really among us. Yeah, how do people know God is with them? He spoke to them. How do we know God is with us? He speaks to us. We, we experience him. The spirit messes with us in the best possible way. He speaks to us through the community of the saints. Something happens in our hearts. Friends, this is the glorious, mysterious, untethered work of the spirit where he blows where he wants and he is the sole one responsible for opening eyes, for leading people to Jesus, for calling those things that are dead into life. He's the one who opens our eyes to the kingdom of God, according to John chapter three. Would you pray, would you pray with me that more of this happens during our church gatherings? Amen? Now, my guess is some of you are thinking, gosh, Ryan, like there are so many ways for this to go really wrong. Like what if somebody has a quote-unquote word that isn't from the Lord. What would we do then? And here's what I want to say. If that's you, I I just want you to know I'm with you. I get that. I I get that um, fear and I understand the dangers. However, the potential for error is no reason to shut prophecy down. It's reason to develop good discernment. It's reason to develop good discernment. See, because there was potential for error in the Corinthian church. And yet Paul didn't shut it down. In fact, he did just the opposite. Continue to pursue, desire it, be jealous for it, go after it, ask for it. But he also set up some guardrails. Verse 29. He said, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and that all may be encouraged. Now, let's just point out that this would take a long time for all of us to do this with um, a few thousand people in our church, okay? So our context is a little bit different. And the verse 32, and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets, So I think it's safe to say that when the church gathered in first century Corinth, that it was a bit different than it is today. Each church meets in a cultural context and they need to do their best to honor that context that they are in. We do that and that's perfectly fine. But here's what I want you to know, that people who went to church in Corinth assumed 
that they would be active contributors, not passive recipients. They assumed that they were gonna participate in the building up of the church. And it may have just been an encouraging word for somebody in the lobby. It may have been a teaching that they did in an ABF. It may have been something that happened in a life group, but they assumed that they were gonna be active participants. The spirit was moving in and through them to build up, to encourage and to give the church hope. They didn't come as passive consumers. They came as active participants. But I want you to notice that there's a category of people in the church in Corinth who are called prophets, but they are not the only ones who are prophesying. Did you catch that? And it appears that those who were in the company of prophets were people who in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says it like this, it had the ability to distinguish between spirits so that they could weigh and assess. Do we think this is from God? See, because prophecy is a proclamation that must be validated. Must be validated. We don't just take a prophetic word and absorb it as a word from God without thinking about it, without assessing it, or without, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, weighing it. it needs to be weighed. In fact, Paul would say it like this in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Do not, it's a command, quench the what? Spirit. It's the picture of if you have your hose and you're watering something and you just bend it in half and you cut off the flow. Like the water's still there, but it's not gonna move. How would we quench the spirit? Hmm. Well, do not despise what? prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Isn't it interesting? You have on one hand, don't despise prophecies. And then he counters that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 with desire prophecy. Desire it. Don't despise it. Desire it. Don't quench the spirit. Open yourself up. Think maybe there's more. Maybe there's more. And then he says, test everything. Because not everything's going to be good. And hold on or hold fast to what is good. I love this. That even within a prophetic word, there might be some that's good and some that's bad. And you don't need to discard the whole thing just because some of it's bad. Hold on to whatever's good. Hold on to whatever's from God. And this takes discernment. It demands discernment. And so let me um, close by giving you four ways that we can live with discernment, okay? And I'd invite you, maybe you just wanna take a picture at the end of this, or you could write them all down, whatever your flavor is, you can do that, okay? Principles, principles for discerning prophecy. Number one, does it align with scripture? If it, if it doesn't, then you know it's not from God. This is the authoritative definitive word of God. And so we get to measure and weigh any sort of prophetic word against what God has said. I would encourage you to, if you move more in the prophetic to ground your life in scripture so that you have good internal discernment, is this from God? Is it not? Okay. Secondly, does it confirm or correct what God is already doing in your life? Now, if it's totally out of left field, I, I don't give it as much weight personally. 
Because it seems as though God gives words that confirm what he's already doing or corrects a question that you're asking or a a desire that you have. Now, you may find out later on, oh, that was from God, even though it was out of left field. (laughs) I just didn't see it in the moment. Anybody ever had that happen? Okay, sure, yeah. And so, but that's hindsight and hindsight's twenty twenty. okay? So I, I give certain weight to if it's in line with what God's already doing. Third, does it glorify God or the person giving the prophecy? Does it lift them up or does it lift God up? If it lifts somebody else up, I would encourage you not to give it quite as much weight. And then finally, what does the community of saints think about the word? Because in 1 Corinthians 14, it was the whole church gathering around going, okay, we're gonna have this group of prophets that sort of help us discern, is this from God? But it was a communal activity, not, hey, we're gonna go pray about this, which is important, but that wasn't the end of it. It was, what does the community of saints think about this word that's potentially from God? So does it align with scripture? Does it confirm or correct what God's already doing? Does it lift God up or somebody else up? And what does the community of saints think about? this. Jump down to verse 39 with me, because this is where Paul lands the plane. Here's what he says. So my brothers, he earnestly desire to prophesy. Does that sound familiar? Okay, it should. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, More on that next week. You don't want to miss next week. Next week is about tongues and it's about women being silent in church. Okay. Bring your popcorn, okay? We're not gonna skip a verse, I promise. But he ends with, and all things should be done decently and in order. Here's, what I, here's just where I wanna land, you guys. I, I want us to land on obeying, earnestly desire to prophesy earnestly desire. Why? Because prophecy is a way the church lives out love. It's connected to the previous chapter. How do we love one another? We build each other up. We encourage one another. We bring hope. And Paul's word for that is prophecy, a word from God that he intends to move through you to others. Fire, wind, a rushing river. Maybe we've domesticated what's intended to be a little bit more wild. Maybe there's more. Let's pray. I wanna just give you a moment between you and God to obey what the scriptures would command, to earnestly desire prophecy. Just tell him you're open, that you wanna hear his voice, not just for you, but for others.
love us to close our time in the scriptures with this prayer that we've said over the last few weeks, come Holy Spirit. And I just wanna invite you to pray out loud and finish that sentence, come Holy Spirit and. And I, I wanna invite you out loud, it's one, maybe one word, one phrase, and we'll try our best not to step on each other's toes. If that happens, no big deal. Just pause and then jump right back in. But let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Have your way. Come, Holy Spirit, and stir and stoke the embers in our heart for you that we would live out this calling to desire to boil over, to be zealous for more of the Spirit's work in our life. So Holy Spirit, would you stir that up in us? God, as we desire more, would you open our eyes and our heart to ways that you're moving and would we be obedient, willing to respond where it is that you would lead? Come Holy Spirit and have your way, we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people say, Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.